God, I, I thank you that you are in the room. We thank you that you have brought all of us into this place on this day for this reason, for this time. And, um, and God, I pray that I would uh, do a service to the, the word, to the message that you have, you've called me to preach today. Um, and as we learn how to deal with uh, and navigate through difficult things, difficult uh, issues in our life that, that you would remind us that, that you're with us and that you're cheering for us and you're rooting us on as we walk through na- difficult times, as we walk through things that are uh, not easy to maneuver in life, but you would remind us through this time and, in, and when we face them tomorrow and the next day and the next day that you are for us, that you're cheering us on. I empty myself, God, I pray you'd speak through me to our church today. I pray that you'd meet us all exactly where we are and that we would leave changed people, that we would uh, exit the doors of this uh, rented uh, unit, a changed church, because we had a very real encounter with you. So, So, Jesus, we give you the freedom to do what you want to do in this place today. I only want to say exactly what you want me to. So it's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, as you can see, summer holidays have hit and summer traveling has begun. Uh, We've had quite a few families who are out visiting family, friends, uh, Tokyo, uh, wherever. Um, But you're here today, and that's what's important because I think God wants to show us something really, really great. Uh, We're in a series called How to Deal, learning how to navigate through the, the hard things in life. Uh, this is our third week. The first week we talked about how to deal with dry seasons in your life. We all go through kind of seasons where uh, God just kind of feels distant. How do, you, how do you deal with those dry seasons? Last week we talked about how to deal with failure, right? And we discovered that failing is oftentimes not what makes us a failure. It's how you respond to failing. Failing is kind of that, that common ground that all of humanity shares something with, right? Nobody ever was born and immediately just started walking. We've all tried to stand up as babies and fallen over. But we've all got back up. And so the, the, the premise of last week, the main point of last week, was to not view failing as what defines you, but just as a setback of what God wants to do in your life next. And so um, I thought, you know what, rather than continue down the, 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 the road of dry seasons, of failing, of kind of hard, heavy, difficult things, I thought today we could talk about something else. And that's, how do we deal with success? That's a weird thing to talk about, isn't it? Is it kind of what we all want? To, is, is there anybody who doesn't want to learn how to deal with success, right? I think, I think my son does not want to deal with the success. All right, I'm really doing a great job on Father's Day, all right? All right. <laughs> but success is something that we all achieve or uh, try to achieve in life. It's something that when we have this idealized picture in our brain of what our life could be, for almost everyone, it's of more money in our account, a better job title underneath our name in a, on, a, on, a, on a business card, a bigger flat, a nicer car, more children, da 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 right? On kind of all of the ripples that are associated. But the, the, the main core is that it's success. We all want to live a successful life. 
And can I tell you a secret? God wants you to live that life as well. God wants you to be a success. God wants you to have a successful life. And not only that, God wants you to be what the Bible says is more than a conqueror in this life. God doesn't want you just to cross the finish line of life. God doesn't want to give you a participation medal. Jesus said, I've come so that you could live life abundantly. You can have an overwhelmingly successful life. But the problem for most of us is that we don't really know how to handle success. And so the, the main point, if you, if you need to run right now and beat everybody to lunch, you'll get the main point of today's message. You ready? All right. Please don't leave, by the way, after you see this. That would hurt my feelings. But it's this. How you handle today's blessing sets the table for tomorrow's. How you handle today's success sets the stage for the success or the blessings you will receive in the future from God. And God is a God who wants to bless you. Did you realize that? And I'm, I'm not trying to get off on this whole health and wealth and prosperity type of gospel saying if you, if you follow Jesus, you'll immediately be a millionaire. Maybe he wants to bless you to be a millionaire, right? But how do you handle being a hundred heir will set the stage for what God wants to do later in your life. Because let's face it, most of us don't really know how to handle success. And if you don't know how to deal with success, if you don't know how to properly respond to success, you're in danger. How many of us have heard all of these stories of these childhood actors who, who as a child, they were in these multi-million dollar blockbuster movies, and then by the time they turn 20, their life just completely falls apart, and they end up working at a Starbucks, right? Uh, you, we've heard all of these stories. The statistics say that nearly 70% of all lottery winners end up broke within seven years. So, so many of us, when we receive any amount of success, oftentimes don't know how to properly handle it. And it, obviously, it doesn't take a lot of success to be dangerous to us either, does it? It doesn't take a lot of success in your life, a significant promotion, a significant portion of, of success or fame to honestly ruin a lot of us. When I was growing up, I was friends with a guy who was a, a, a pretty decent athlete. But um, there was one summer he just put in the, and did the work. And he, he was at the baseball field every single day doing as much work as he possibly could. And, and got to, because of that, his hard work paid off. He became a really, really better, good baseball player for our little bitty town and our little bitty school. And, and all of a sudden, as, a, as an underclassman, he started to become a starter on the varsity team, right? He got called up with the big guys, right? We were in, ninth, we were in grade 9, so we were a bunch of 14-year-olds. He was playing with the 17- and 18-year-old kids, and all of a sudden, his head just started to get a little bigger, right? We used to joke around saying how we need to order him a bigger hat because his head was too big for the for this current hat. But, but it, the point is, is that he started to think, wow, wait, I really am on the road to success. I am something good. And he stopped putting in the work. And it was the very thing that made him good. The hard work that he put in over one summer to promote him 
to the varsity team that ultimately was his downfall because once he got on the varsity team, he stopped working hard. And he never got to even play. You see, it doesn't take a lot of success for us to kind of ruin it, right? There's, it doesn't take a whole lot of success for us to be dangerous. So what if God wants you to be a success in life? And I'm not going to define success for you other than just being faithful to what God's called you to do. But what if God wants you to be a success and, and your response to your current promotion, your current blessing, your current success is impeding the success he wants you to have in the future. So, what if we did this? What if we looked at someone who received a great deal of success, a great deal of fame, and saw how he responded to that, learned from those principles and those, those systems that he established in his life, apply it to ours so that we can set the stage for God to bring us into a higher level of promotion later on in life? How does that sound? If it doesn't sound good, sorry, that's my sermon anyways today, okay? So, if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, you can go ahead and open them up to 2 Samuel chapter 8. We're pretty much going to be in 2 Samuel 8 for most of the day. I'm going to pop around from, from verse to verse here and there, but for the most part of today, we're going to camp out in 2 Samuel 8. And this is all about a guy named David, okay? David... For those of you who remember the story, as a, as a small boy, as a teenager, slew a giant, he threw a slingshot, a rock at a giant named Goliath, because Goliath was making fun of God's people, God was, God was taunt, or not God, Goliath was taunting God's people, he, he slayed a giant, and was later on in life anointed as the king of Israel, and now we're about to see how God has continued to bless this guy in his conquest. So 2 Samuel chapter 8 is pretty much a fulfillment of what we call a Davidic covenant between God and David that we find in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7 is where God promises David to, that the Messiah will come through his bloodline and Jesus was related through great, great, greats to Jesus and David. Um, we also learn through 2 Samuel 7 that God is going to, to give David and the nation of Israel the land that he had promised his forefathers. And so that's basically what 2 Samuel 8 is all about. 2 Samuel 8 picks up with David's military conquests of these uh, invading countries. So let's, let's start, and then I'll kind of break down a little bit as we go along, okay? So 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. After this, David defeated and subdued the Philistines by conquering Gath, their largest town. David also conquered the land of Moab. He made the people lie down on the ground in a row, and he measured them off in groups with a link of rope. He measured off two groups to be executed for every one group to be spared. The Moabites, who David also destroyed, the forces of Hadassah, I love the Old Testament, Hadassah, son of Rehab, king of Zobah, when Hadazizar marched out to the strength to strengthen his control along the Euphrates River. David captured 1,000 chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. 
he crippled all the chariot horses except enough for 100 chariots. When Armenians from Damascus arrived to help King Hadazir, David killed 22,000 of them. Then he placed several army garrisons in Damascus, the Armenian capital, and the Armenians became David's subjects and paid him tribute money. So the Lord made David victorious wherever he went. Verse 7. David brought the gold shields of Hadazizar's officers to Jerusalem along with a large amount of bronze from his towns Teba and Brothai. Verse 9. When King Toy of Hamath heard that David had destroyed the entire army of Hadazizar, he sent his son Joram to congratulate King David for his successful campaign. Hadazizar and Toy had been enemies and were often at war. Joram presented David with many gifts of silver, gold, and bronze. We're in verse 11 now. King David dedicated all these gifts to the Lord as he did with the silver and gold from the other nations he had defeated. That's key. I will come back to that in a minute, okay? From Edom, Moab, Ammon, Philistia, and Amalek, and from Hedizizar, son of Rahab, king of Zobah. Verse 13. So David became even more famous when he returned from destroying 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He placed army garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became David's subjects. In fact, the Lord made David victorious wherever he went. So David is a success. He's starting to get fame. Verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel and did what was right, was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Jeruiah, was commander of the army. And Jehoshaphat, son of Ehud, was his royal historian. Zadok. King of them and them and them and them and them <laughs> were the court secretary. Okay, please forgive me for not having my uh, Hebrew accent today, right? And Benaniah, son of Jehoda, was the captain of the king's bodyguard. So that's all of Second Samuel chapter 8. And, and to give you maybe a little bit more of a visual of what happened, here's a map of essentially the extent of David's kingdom as we see in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and also 2 Samuel chapter 10, right? So if we just start up here, right, uh, it, we see it, basically this entire chapter talks about his military conquests. And he starts with the Philistines. The Philistines live in, and you can see where the Philistines were, just this little bitty pocket of annoying people that had... Um, had messed with and harassed the nation of Israel for over 300 years. But David starts with them, and it says that um, he removes that nation, right? And then he moves on to the Moabites. Moabites live in where is modern-day Jordan. And then he moves on to Zobah. Zobah is kind of in the Iraq-Euphrates River area, verse 9. And verse, then in verse 12, he talks about the Ammonites. They live in modern-day southern Jordan, and they had kind of been an a, um, enemy of the nation of Israel going all the way back to Numbers 21. If you recall in Numbers chapter 21, it talks about how when Moses was leading the nation of Israel towards this very area, the, that particular nation, 
the Ammonites wouldn't let the Israelites pass through with Moses. Okay? So basically what you see then is in verse 13, David became the most famous and feared leader of his day. And so if there was ever someone who we could study from a shepherd boy to conquering king of one of the most advanced civilizations of that time, it'd be David. So what are some of the characteristics that we see in David based on just this little uh, recap of his military successes? I think there's three things that we see in David that how he responded to success that we can apply to our lives today, thousands of years later, and still receive the same outcome and blessing from God. So what if we looked at what those three were? Okay, The first one is this. David kept his trust in the right place. David kept his trust in the right place. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4, you see evidence of this when it says this. David captured 1,000 chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He crippled the chariot horses except enough for 100. So how in the world does that apply to this first principle of David keeping his trust in the right place? Great question, church. And it's this. like Basically, what happens is in chapter 4, when David captures this entire opposing army, other translations... get a little more graphic in, in their description of what David does. But basically, David and his army commands his army to take a sword and cut the hamstring of all of the horses and chariot who pulled chariots, right? Why in the world was David such a cruel person to animals? Did he just not like PETA? Was, did he not be an advocate for animal rights? Like, did he just really enjoy violence? No, it's because David understood something. David understood history. David understood the law of the Lord. And what I mean by that is this. Write this down. I'm not going to reference it completely, but this week when you study, if you want, you can study. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, when David was anointed to be the king of Israel, according to God's law, which you find in Deuteronomy 17, The king of Israel was to copy word for word the law of the Lord on a scroll. He was to write it down. And then he was to keep that scroll right beside him at all times. So that as he ruled and as he judged over the nation of Israel, he could refer to God's law as the foundation of his decisions. And one of the decisions and one of the laws that you'll find in Deuteronomy chapter 17 is that whenever God commanded his kings, when you conquer these, na- these nations, when you conquer these people who have come in and invaded your land while you were gone into slavery for generations in the nation of Egypt, and they will squat on your land, and when you are called to go and conquer them, you are not to take over all of their horses. You are to, you are to cut their hamstring. That's why if you've ever heard the expression, I've been, they're trying to hamstring me, right? That literally means what they would do. It's a military tactic. They would take a blade and they would cut the hamstring, the strongest muscle in the, in the horse. 
so that the horse was ineffective. It was essentially making an entire army ineffective. And at this time in history, a chariot, an army of chariots, was the most powerful military force that you could think of. Think of it in today's, today's military tactics. It would be like an entire army of panzer tanks. And so D- David takes over an entire country filled with tanks, and instead of taking the tanks and continuing on in his conquests to take over this entire area of land, he blows up the tanks. Doesn't seem like a very smart military tactic, does it? But it was a command of God because God understood that if David or his people, his kings, were to continue to collect all of these military instruments, every battle they would win from there on forward would not seem as if God had provided the victory for them. They would have that temptation to think, I did this myself. Because I took all of these chariots and these horses and just blew over an opposing army, God didn't have to help me, I helped me. And so God told them, I don't want you to place your trust in instruments of war. I want you to place your trust in me. And that's where we see David. That's why he he responded in that way. It's not because he was cruel, but it's because he understood the, 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 the commandment of God in Deuteronomy 17. And because of that, We see this psalm later on, Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, that David wrote. He says, some nations boast of their chariots and horses, but we boast in the name of the Lord our God. You see, David kept his trust in the right place. So anytime you you start to see any level of success in your life, you need to remember and keep your trust in the right place and not to trust in your abilities, not to trust in your talent, not to trust in your, your intellect or your abilities, but to continue to trust in the Lord himself. Second thing we see is this. David gave credit to the right place. David gave credit to the right place. And I think we can see this example in verses 7 through 10 of 2 Samuel 8. When it says this. It says, David brought the gold shields of Hedizar's officers to Jerusalem, along with a large amount of bronze from the towns of Teba and Barathai. Right? And it continues to go on from there. And, and here's the thing. This is where we kind of miss a little bit of the cultural aspect um, in today's world. It's, it's that in this day and in this age, when you were a country and, and you completed a military conquest, how you added to your nation's economy was through the plundering and looting and stealing of the cities that you had just conquered. It was an expected thing. It was expected 
conquering kings to come and steal all the gold, the silver, the bronze, all of the, the, the valuable things from that defeated city. That was kind of the terms of surrender. We're going to conquer your entire city, and as a result, we get everything that you had. And that's how these kings added to their personal fortune during this day in history. Well, what happens with David? David takes all of the plunder. David takes all of the things from this city. And rather than adding to his own personal fortune, he brings it back to Jerusalem. He brings it back and dedicates it to God so that years later, when the actual living temple, after David has conquered this entire map, right? After David has conquered all of this this area known as Israel, and God says, build for me a temple. His son Solomon builds the temple, right? And, we, and, and, and the Old Testament is very elaborate in how extraordinarily gaudy the temple was. Well, what resources do you think funded Solomon's building of that temple? It was all of the gold and the silver and the bronze that David had collected when he was conquering God's land. You see, David gave the credit to the right place. So rather than building for himself a vast personal fortune, he saved it so that he could pass that blessing on to his son. And Solomon would be the one who would get to build that temple. You see, the Bible talks to us a lot about making plans. And, and, and most people would think, why in the world would you just consent? Why would you just, why, why would you sit on that much money whenever you could spend it on your own, right? Like, you know that back in the day, David's advisors are like, boss, just pocket some of this so that we can, we can buy that brand new flat screen TV for your, for your palace, right? But David understood this very principle of nothing that we achieve in life is guaranteed. Nothing is, is, is guaranteed. The first church that I ever worked at, uh, where I was an intern as a 20-year-old, coming up on 20 years ago this summer, um, there was a circ- secretary named Miss Shirley. Miss Shirley was like 87 years old, had worked as the secretary of this, this little bitty church in, in my hometown for probably 80 of the 87 years that she was alive and was just the sweetest little grandmother to me. She'd always bring me little snacks. She'd take care of me. But, but anytime we would talk, you know, I'd always talk. She'd always ask me about, like, my plans and ask me how I'm doing and what I'm going to be doing this weekend. And so I'd tell her, and then I'd, be t- and then I'd ask her, because it's the socially nice thing to do, like, Miss Shirley, what are you going to do? Are you going to spend time with your grandkids? She's like, well, Lord willing, I'm going to do this. And then, Lord willing, I'm going to go to Walmart. And then, Lord willing, I'm going to cook some dinner. And then, Lord willing, I'll be at church on Sunday. And then, Lord willing, Lord willing. I was like, Miss Shirley, why do you keep saying Lord willing? Like, are you just, do you, are you stuck? You know, like, did you just get that phrase stuck in your head or something? And she said, Brad, nothing is promised to us. Nothing in this life is promised to me. And so, if I get to go to Walmart after work today, if I get to spend time with my grandkids this weekend, it's because the Lord willed it. It's because the Lord willed it. And, and that's stuck with me to today. It's stu- maybe just because she annoyed me so much with how she would say it. No, but uh, she, she, she stuck with me. And as we discovered last week, 
that in Christ, any failure is just a temporary setback in the light of eternity. Any bit of success that you gain in this world is also temporary and not really very significant in view of the all-surpassing glory of heaven either. Let me repeat that. When you compare your light and moment, when you compare any failure that you have in life in view of eternity, it's not very significant. But whenever you compare any amount of victory or success in your life through the same perspective, it's not very significant either, is it? It reminds me very much of James chapter 4, where, God said, where James is writing this letter, and he talks about how we're not promised tomorrow. Our life, in some translations, it says that our life is just a mist. We're here for a little bit, and then we're gone. And so often, we spend so much of our efforts trying to build our kingdom when, when God just says, your kingdom is nothing more than a mist or a fog in this world. And David understood the long-term effects of his success. Rather than build up his own personal kingdom, he set it aside so that the kingdom could be built and established for years to come. You see, the moment you start to think that you've done this thing on your own, whatever it is that success is, the moment you think that you got that promotion on your own, you got that dean's list uh, on your own, that moment you, you got... Whatever it is on your own is the moment that you start to get in trouble. Because according to the word of God, every success we have is because God has blessed us. So David understood that. He understood how to keep his trust in the right place. And whenever we start to remember and keep that perspective it starts to change how we receive praise isn't it it starts to change how we view and receive any kind of praise and God talks specifically about that to the nation of Israel he talks about it in in Deuteronomy chapter 8 where whenever things start to go your way the temptation is to receive it and start to think I've done this I've, 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 I've made this for me I've grown this organization I increased our profit percentage I added this many people to my team I da, 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 da. but God made it very clear to us that that's not the case that's not how the perspective we need to have Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 6 through 20. And this is, this is when God writes these things to his people who were about to enter into what we described in 2 Samuel 8, this, this season of overwhelming victory and conquering their enemies. Look what it says. So, this is God speaking to his people. It says, So obey the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, flowing with streams and pools of water, with fountains and springs that gush out in the valleys and hills. It is the land of wheat and barley, of grapevines, fig trees, and pomegranates, of olive oil and of honey. It is a land where food is plentiful and nothing is lacking. It is a land where iron is as common as stone and copper is abundant in the hills. And so God's, he's saying, I'm bringing this success into your life. 
This is what your life is going to be like. This is what you're about to experience. Who wouldn't want to experience that level of success in their life? But he gives us a warning, and it starts in verse, eight, verse 10. It says, When you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. But that is the time to be careful. Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey His commands, regulations, and decrees that I'm giving you today. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and when your flocks and herds have become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, be careful. Do not become proud at the time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was so hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness a food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and to test you for your own good. He did all this so that you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Remember, the Lord your God, He is the one who gives you power to be successful. In order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. But I assure you of this. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods, worshiping and bowing down to them, you will certainly be destroyed. Just as the Lord has destroyed other nations in your path, you also will be destroyed if you refuse to obey the Lord your God. So God explicitly warns us. Number one, the implication is that God wants to give us this abundance, and this, this overwhelming blessing of a land. But once you forget that you were a slave and get too comfortable thinking, I made this nice house on my own, you start to lose the perspective of the blessing that God wants you to continue to have in front of you. And so what we see in David's life is that number one, he kept his trust in the right place. Number two, he gave credit to the right place. And then number three, he stayed under the authority of God. In spite of verse 15 where it says he was the most feared and, and successful military commander of his day, he stayed humble and he stayed underneath God's authority. And I personally think it's because of the scroll that he had on his hip the whole time. Because he understood, because he wrote it in his own handwriting, the law that God commanded of his kings to live out. 
So that it never got far away from him. So that he never lost that perspective. So that he never allowed himself to get to where God warns his people in Deuteronomy chapter 8. They could go if they lose sight of where they were and where God brought them to. So he stayed under the authority of God. And so because of that, God was able to give him more victory, more success, more blessing as he continued to walk through his life. And if you know the story of David, you do know that he, was, he failed at times as well. We, one of those failures is very explicitly recorded, but he was a man who understood the principles that Jesus preached on Hundreds of years later, he understood what Jesus meant when he said this. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. If you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you remember... All the way back to when David was first introduced into the story of Scripture. Was he a king? Did he, did we, were we introduced to David when he was a conquering hero king? Now the first introduction we have to David was when he was the youngest runt of Jesse's family and was out taking care of the lowest of the low duties for all the brothers, and that was taking care of sheep. He was taking care of stubborn, not very smart, prone to wander, prone to do what they want to sheep. But I believe that he was as faithful to those sheep as he could be. And God saw that faithfulness. The day after day after day, he took care of his dad's sheep because that's what his dad had trusted him with. And it was from that initial seed of faithfulness in the little things in his life that God could see that he could trust him with the greater things. And what a story, isn't it, from a guy who was charged with, with taking care of sheep to a man who was charged with taking care of the land God had promised generations of Israelites they would receive. And it's because he gave credit to the right place, he kept his trust in the right place, and he kept that authority of God in his life. So, how do you Handle success. Same thing. You keep your trust in the right place. You give credit to the right place. And you keep yourself under the authority of God. Lest you forget all that God has done for you. Let's pray. God, may we, as your people, and may we, 
as your church. May I, as your son, be found faithful with the little things in life. With the little bit of money you've trusted to me. With the little bit of influence you've trusted to me. With the little bit of friendship. With the little bit of children that you trusted me. May I be found faithful in how I treat other people. May I be found faithful with the decisions you've called me to make. May I be faithful with the relationships that you've placed in my life. So that as I'm faithful with a flock of sheep, so as we're faithful as your people with with the little things in life that don't seem to be very significant, you, you use to judge our character. You use to, to see how we would handle the greater promotion. God, I pray all of us are faithful with the little things. I pray that we would all keep our trust in the right place and we would give credit to the right place and that we would, get, we would live underneath your authority and that just as David kept your law rolled up in a scroll beside his hip, may we keep your word rolled up in a scroll inside our hearts. And may it direct, may it give us guidance on how to respond to situations that could bring success. And we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's a light to us. It brings hope to us. Oftentimes it's your uh, outlet of speaking to us. Help us to keep your word close to our hearts. We thank you, God, that you do desire to give us a hope and a future that is filled with success and blessing. That you want us all to be more than conquerors in this world. Just as David was a conqueror of this land in 2 Samuel 8, you desire for us to be more than that to this world. That we could be the conquerors of darkness. We could be the conquerors of hopelessness. We could be the conquerors of defeatism. We could be the conquerors of depression. We could be the conquerors of darkness. Because you have placed your light inside all of us if we're in Christ. Help us to live life to the fullest knowing, maybe for some of us, I pray that this week you'd show us that you desire for, just to start with, you desire for our life to be a success. That you'd remind us what we talked about a few weeks ago, about how our life is not storm to storm to storm, but our life in Christ is glory to glory to glory. And there may be storms that get in the way, there may be setbacks, there may be failures that try to trip us up along the way, but we know that my God is for me, and He has a great thing ahead of me, and I'm going to continue to march on and give Him credit the whole way. God, may, may we be known as a church that lives that life and, and, and sees this world through that prescription set of lenses. 
May the world take notice to how we respond to failures. May the world take notice for how we respond to success as well. Because oftentimes it's our response to the things of this world that speak a louder sermon than I could ever speak on my own. God, may our lives, in response to success, preach a very loud sermon to the world this week. I pray success over all of us this week. I pray you'd bless your church with success, with promotion, with elevation this week so that we could respond in the correct way and then you can bless us with even more. If we're faithful with what you give us today, you'll give us more tomorrow. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.